Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We'll read the first 13 verses. Hear the word of God. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint, when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons." Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they, that's our earthly fathers, verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But He, God, chastens us for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Thus far, the reading of the most profound and beautiful chapter, I believe, in all of Scripture on why God afflicts us and what His goal is in doing so. Let's seek His face in prayer. Lord God, please be with us in these moments as we seek to stammer just a few words about how to end in Christ with all our sufferings, to consider Him in a variety of ways, like a diamond looked at from its various facets, so that Jesus will become all the more exquisitely beautiful and glorious, the chief among 10,000, the altogether lovely one, through thy divine chastening hand, and that we may follow thee as thou hast walked the Via Dolorosa to the cross. May we walk in thy footsteps, carrying the lighter, non-meritorious end of the cross, and be made willing to suffer for the Master's sake. Blessed are ye when ye shall suffer persecution for my name's sake, For so have they persecuted the prophets which were before you. So be with us, Lord, in these moments, and bless us abundantly for thy own name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, my subject for this session is how to end in Christ with all our sufferings. We've already heard a lot about suffering and We know deep down, don't we, that all our suffering, in one sense, is traceable back to our deep fallen Adam. No sin, there'd be no suffering. We heard that last night, expounded well for us. So I'm not going to deal with that in this session, 
nor am I going to deal with the fact that you know that affliction is grievous. No one likes to be afflicted. And we are not called to ask God for more affliction so that we'll be more sanctified. We're called to leave the amount of affliction that we receive, the amount of suffering we have to endure, to God's all-wise providential hand. So, we're also not going to be talking in this address about the correlation between our sin and suffering. We heard a fair bit about that also. The whole book of Job is teaching us, isn't that true, that there's not a one-to-one correlation. I think we know deep down, if we know our theology even a little bit, that it's not the amount of affliction or suffering we receive, but it's how we respond to those sufferings that we are interested in, ought to be, and that God is interested in. And if you're a Christian, you want to respond to the suffering hand of God in a way that glorifies Him. You see, before affliction comes, it's, it's difficult to get ready, to get ready for it. After we go through affliction, it can be difficult to have it sanctified the way it should be. But it's in the furnace of affliction, in the heartbeat of suffering, that we struggle the most. How can I be conformed to Christ right now while I'm in the furnace of affliction? How can I honor Jesus while I'm suffering? And so if you're like me, You've prayed this prayer many times in the midst of suffering. Lord, grant me grace to live through this affliction Christianly, Christ-centeredly. I need thy help, Lord. And Hebrews 12 helps us in an amazing way. It tells us that God afflicts us as a father, if we're believers, and that His chastening is to make us partakers of the righteousness and the holiness of Christ. And if that's true, then even if affliction is grievous for the moment, and it's not pleasant, God will use use it in His gymnasium, verse 11 actually uses gymnasium, from which we get gymnasium. He will use it to sanctify us. And to make us more mature and more conformed to his son. And if that's the case, then verse 12 tells us, Well, wherefore, when you get afflicted, when you get chastened by God, if he's doing it to you as a father, not judicially, but medicinally, lift up the hands which hang down and make a straight path for your feet. Because it's your father who has more to teach you. Now, I, uh, I identified with uh, Brother Kidd last night when he told some of the great afflictions that he and his wife have gone through, and I've gone through my share of uh, heavy, heavy afflictions that have broken me in, in years past. And I, I have struggled so much with how to cope with affliction, particularly when I was right in the thick of it. And I've tried different things, And some can be a little help for a little while. But through the years, especially through a a long six-year affliction, I came to a settled position in my own mind that there's one thing that helped me far more than anything else. Far more. More than all the other things combined. And that one thing is in verse 3 of Hebrews 12, It's just these words, for consider him. That's it. Consider Jesus. Consider that he endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. So as we've been hearing all weekend so far, as Jesus has suffered, so we must suffer following behind him. That's vital. That's vital for the Christian life. 
But in that suffering, we need to look at Jesus like, like, like a diamond that has its different facets and look at different aspects of considering Him. And each one of those aspects can just be cumulative in our contemplations, in our prayers, in our meditations, in our grappling with affliction, until we come to this conclusion, which is at least what I came to, that looking at Christ in the the, the glorious panorama, the splendor of who He is as a person, in His nature, states, offices, everything about Him, focusing on that, And how that relates to me as a suffering believer is the very best way of coping with suffering. Hence my theme, ending in Christ with your sufferings. I'm not saying this is easy. I'm not saying that you won't have lapses. I just had a member from my church uh, who, who went through three or four infections in his knee, was in the hospital again. Um, they thought some years ago they had to take off his leg, but God spared him. He, he said to me at that time, when he called me up once more and said, the infection is back. And I said, oh, no, because I thought the leg would have to be taken off. I'm so sorry, brother. He said, no, no, don't worry about me. My father must have more to teach me. Oh, wow. He's a lot more godly than I am. Now, that went for some years, and just a few weeks ago, he was back in the hospital with that same knee. And he said this to me. He said there was about a half an hour when he was writhing in pain the night he went to the hospital that I wasn't in the right place. I couldn't end in Christ. And he was was feeling guilty because for a half an hour, he couldn't end in Christ. I'm thinking, wow, brother, I've gone a lot longer than a half an hour without ending in Christ. And I told him that. I said, you know, you came to the right place after half an hour. Thank God for that and don't focus on that half hour. Ask God to forgive that sin and and keep ending in Christ. See, that's the point. To end in Christ over and over again. So we have to hold spiritual soliloquy, as the Puritans used to call it, and, and as Paul exercised it in the Psalms, with our own soul. And when we're in suffering, we have to say to ourselves... O my soul, why art thou sad and grieving? Hope thou in God, for he's the health of thy countenance. Look to Jesus, and through him to the triune God, to be your help. Jesus Christ is the fountainhead of all Christianity, and what the Holy Spirit does is he takes the things of Christ and reveals them to us, and when the things of Christ are real, and the ultimate causation, as we heard in the last talk, of all that is and was and shall be, you see, then we get grounded in the right person with the right attitude and we look to Him and we find strength beyond what we could ever expect or even think to find in Jesus Christ Himself. And then we understand Ephesians 3.20, God has done exceedingly, abundantly above all that I could ask or think. And then when you come out the other end of suffering, you look back and you say, it was so good for me to be afflicted because I wouldn't trade that for anything in the world because I'm not the same person I was before I was afflicted. God has molded me, shaped me. I've been on the potter's wheel and he's shaped me into the kind of Christian he wants me to be much more, that is one much more conformed to Christ, Romans 8, 29, than I ever would have been without these sufferings. And I don't have to ask you to raise your hand right now because I know almost every hand would go up. When in your life has God taught you the most about Himself? It's in your suffering, isn't it? And in your suffering... He's taught you things you can never learn in prosperity. We learn more from the rod that he uses to strike us than we do from the staff that he uses to comfort us. And so we need this Christ-centeredness in affliction. And we need to encourage one another when we're suffering. Look to Jesus. 
the author and finisher of your faith, who endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God to intercede for you. So what are those facets of this diamond? Well, I've got ten of them for you. I'm going to give them to you, obviously, quickly. But I think as we move along here, you'll understand what I'm getting at. Consider him. Number one, consider the passion of Christ. The Latin word here is passio, from which we get passion, which simply means suffering. Consider the sufferings of Jesus, especially at the end of his life. Gethsemane, Gabbatha, and particularly Golgotha. I've had the privilege of being in Israel uh, five or six times now, and every time I always go to the, the Protestant view of where Golgotha is, where there's, a, there's like a skull-like um, strata of rock that comes out of a hillside, and uh, it's just very contemplative to stand there and think about Jesus, even if that's not the exact place. On the cross, there, suffering, pouring out His life for you. It's so, so edifying, so good for the soul. But when you go there today, you know, it's rather, it's not touristy, at least not that site. It's not unedifying in any way, but it's, it's clean. But in Jesus' day, it wasn't clean. This was an abysmal place. There were, there were skulls laying about, putrid flesh, uh, crosses, bloodstained. And our Savior is on the center one, hanging naked and in pain and in shame. And mothers would walk by with their kids and look at those three men on the cross and say, don't you ever be like them. They've committed treason against our land. They're abysmal people. What a, what a shame that Jesus went through. And if you want to really cope with your own sufferings, you've got to think about what he suffered for you that you actually might suffer so little as you do. Because no matter, no matter how much you suffer, you suffer much less than what you deserve. We deserve just death and hell. That's it. I was at Butterworth Hospital a few blocks down the road here. And a lady walked on the elevator, floor one. She's going to floor seven. I'm going to floor seven. I thought, well, I got about a minute to evangelize her, maybe. So I just said, nice weather out today. And she said, yes. I said, it's too bad people complain about the weather. And I thought I'd go from there to God. And she preempted me. And she said, you got that right. She said, my mother used to always tell me anything above ground is the mercy of the Lord. Wow, she's evangelizing me. <laughs> anything above ground. She's saying death and hell is what we all deserve. And it's true. If you see your own sin, the magnitude of your sin in the light of the cross, none of us are suffering the way we ought to be. But Jesus... Jesus came to save sinners. He who takes away the sin of the world. He came to deal with sin. And the only way our sin can be dealt with is by His agony, His bloody sweat, His taking our death into the grave, His tasting death for us, His entering the lake of fire for us, His going into the bottomless pit on the agonies of the cross where He endured hell in its essence as our substitute, in our place, as our head, suffering the wrath of a sin-hating God against sin. The holy revulsion of a God who cannot look upon sin is poured out upon Calvary for you, dear believer. This is what God thinks of your sin, of my sin. He is bearing it, wounded for our transgressions to the bitter end of Golgotha. And there in that context with skulls and bones and putrid flesh scattered about and those three crosses dingy and bloodstained supporting these three naked bodies ghastly bloodstained too all in keeping with the surroundings there every insult is heaped upon our beloved savior 
the soldiers, the spectators, the priests, the elders in their holy robes of office, all are focused on Him, all condemning Him, all casting accusations in His teeth. Only one voice is raised on His behalf, the voice of a despicable faith, soon to die. The pure-minded women are silent. The disciples who loved him are coward and terrified far away. No one catches his eye and through a glance shows how much they understand and gives him compassion or pity. He's an alien from his father's house. He's hanging between heaven and earth and hell and being seemingly attacked or forsaken by all. He treads the wine press alone. The curtain to the Holy of Holies is pulled back in those last three hours and closed again and He's alone, forsaken of God and of men. The sun is dark. It won't even shine on him. The face of the Father that he has always turned to in love and adoration doesn't seem to be there now. Everything seems overwhelming. Sin is awesome in the face of Sinai's thunder and lightning, but sin is most bitter in the face of the red glass of Christ's suffering. It's your sin, it's my sin, that made him to be abandoned to the most cruel hands of the most merciless men on planet earth. And even the Father said, the sun cannot shine upon him. The unclean place, the passions of the mob, the sufferings of the soul, especially the sufferings of the soul. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's what God thinks of your sin and my sin. Consider the passion of Christ. Before you complain, then put your hand on your mouth and just say, Oh Lord, all this you suffered. For me. And it will make you bow. It will make you bow in submission. This is the way to consider him. Consider his passion. There's not a single affliction, suffering that you must endure that he has not already endured in its essence. That's what Hebrews 4.15 says. He was tempted in all points like as you are. Every single point. I was, I was taught that one time in this long period of trial. I, had, I was feeling very sorry for myself. And I remember I was crawling on the ground in my study, pulling at the shag carpeting, crying out to God, weeping. And finally, I just remember pouring out to him. Some, it's almost blasphemous, but I just said, Lord, I don't think anyone's ever had to go through this. And then those words came right into my mind like a dart. He was tempted in all points like as we are. And I saw even if no one else did, my Savior did. And that was enough. And He persevered with me to this moment so that I might persevere with Him. He held me fast so that I might hold Him fast. And He would bring me through. He would bring me through. How I did not know. Only this I knew. That he had promised me over and over again that there shall surely come an end. Proverbs twenty three eighteen. There shall surely come an end and thy expectation shall not be cut off. And I clung, I clung to that promise in the midst of suffering that Jesus can identify with it. He's there with me. And then that precious text. Oh, I love this text. God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. And there's no temptation taken hold of you, but such as is common to man. Because of his sufferings, he will hold you up through your sufferings. That's number one. Consider the passion of Christ. Number two, consider the power, the power of Christ. Being infinite God-man, Jesus received power on earth to bear infinite sufferings on your behalf, dear believer. And through the merit of these sufferings, he now receives royal power in heaven from his Father to rule over your sufferings, 
to strengthen you in those sufferings and to bring you out of those sufferings. Matthew 28, 18. And so translated practically relative to your sufferings, his heaven-earth power will read something like this. If he desires to weigh you down with suffering, yes, even seemingly staggering suffering, don't be alarmed. You will not drown. You will not be burnt. Isaiah 43. You will come through it, but look to him for strength. He's almighty. Nor should you be ashamed. Nor should you be ashamed of the magnitude of your sufferings. I was 13 years old. I went to work for my dad. He was a contractor. And my two older brothers were working for him that summer as well. We were shingling a roof. And I, uh, I saw my older brothers, who had broader shoulders than I did, take a pack of shingles, I don't know what they are, 60, 70 pounds, throw them on their shoulders, walk up the ladder, and slap them down uh, on the roof. And so I thought, well, that's, that's what i got to do. So I picked up the shingles, put them on my shoulder, oh, a little unsteady, and started going up the ladder. And I, was, I just felt like I was going to fall backwards. I... I was stuck. I was halfway up. I couldn't come back down. And I couldn't go up. And I just kept struggling. I finally got up there. And I managed to put them down. I was like, oh. I get back down. My dad had watched the whole thing. And he comes over and he lays his hand on my shoulder. He says, son. He said, next time take up half a bundle. When you get older and you have shoulders like your brother's, it can take up a whole bundle. Thanks, Dad. But you see, God, as we heard last night, tailor makes your afflictions for your shoulders. And the promise is, He won't give you more than you're able to bear. He won't give you more than you're able to bear. You think you can't go on one more day? You think you can't go on one more minute? You think it's too much? He'll give you strength to bear it. It's tailor-made. It's tailor-made for your shoulders. George Downame, a relatively unknown Puritan, says this, The Lord does not measure out our afflictions according to our faults, but according to our strength. And He looks not at what we have deserved, but at what we are able to bear. That's why Paul could sing in the inner prison with Silas. That's why when I was assaulted in Eastern Europe and was laying on the ground, tied up and gagged and blindfolded by what I thought was mafia, at least that's what they said they were, it was the Word of God, the strength of Christ at that moment that made me feel I could surrender everything to God. And as soon as I lost that, a couple hours later, and they took me to a motel room, I felt abandoned by God. You just have to live out of the strength of God and plead for that. It's a gift of God. When the Word of God comes into your mind and strengthens you in the midst of suffering, there's no end. There's no end to the limit of what you can endure. That's how the martyrs went to the stake, believing that Christ was almighty and could carry them through the flames. Consider the power of Christ. He can bring you through situations that are just unspeakable. And He will. For He will never, no, never, no, never, five-fold negative, breaking the boundaries of Greek grammar, Hebrews 13, never, no, never, no, never forsake you or leave you. As sure as He is who He is, He cannot desert His own. Number three, consider the presence of of Christ, the presence of Christ. This is beautiful. This has given me a lot of comfort that He's at the right hand of the Father and He's interceding for me every single second. Hebrews 7.25 He ever lives to make intercession for you. And you see, what that means, I, I, I really believe this, is that He has an infinite capacity to remember all of His people at the same time. And yet to remember each one as if each one were his only child. 
so that there's never a moment. Right now, dear believer, he's praying for you. Now, 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 now. So no matter what I'm going through, I'm protected in his intercessory work. I say to my students often, there's no doctrine more underestimated, in my opinion, in the Reformed systematic theology tradition than the intercession of Christ. We make much of his sufferings, rightly so. We make much of his resurrection, rightly so. But we should make a whole lot more of his intercession. Psalm 139 verse 12 says, Darkness and light are both alike to thee. He's pleading at the right hand of the Father. He is the light of the world. He, the sun, the heaven has no need of a moon or a sun because the Lamb is the light thereof, Revelation says. He is pure light. And when we come in darkness, there's no darkness for Him. Darkness and light are both alike. What is it easier to say to you, paralytic, be healed, take up your bed and walk, or to forgive your sins? I am almighty. I can do all things. I will keep you in my intercessory work. I will never abandon you. Even when you abandon me, your unbrotherliness to Christ, terrible though it is, will never unbrother this precious elder brother from you. He will hold you up through his intercessory power. He will keep you in his high priestly eye. He will preserve you in his high priestly heart. He will bear you on His high priestly shoulders. He will not remove you from the engravings on His high priestly hands. And He will never cease to remember you in His high priestly intercessions. The same Jesus, who's never failed you once in all of yesterday's afflictions, but gave you extra tokens of His care in times of extra need. He'll bring you through today's trials. You know, I like, it. I like this picture. I've thought about this often. You're standing on the edge of an ocean or a large lake like Lake Michigan. And there, it's a very stormy day and the, the waves are rolling in. And you know, they're, they're like less than 100 feet away from you. And they look so monstrous. And you think, wow, am I going to be safe here standing on shore? And somehow, as those waves get very close to you. They just break down. And, and, and they, go, they don't even go up to your knees as you stand on shore. And time and time and time again, I've been so worried about something, so overwhelmed, thinking I couldn't get through it. And then God breaks in on the beachhead of my life. And those huge waves are broken down by His grace to just go over my feet. He's amazing. That comes from the intercessions of Christ because He's pleading for you. John Bunyan has this interesting, interesting part of his book on the advocateship of Christ. He says there's three things about Jesus at the right hand of the Father. He is there. He gets this from the New Testament, various texts. He sits there and He stands there. And he says, he is there to indicate he's got the victory over all things. He sits there to show that he governs everything. Everything's under his control. And he stands there. He stands up for his people in times of their greatest need. And intercedes with power. Like Stephen, when he was being beaten with stones. The heavens opened up and he saw him standing at the right hand of the Father. And so Stephen could say, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit and die exactly the same way Jesus died. So consider the presence of Christ. He's with you right now, dear believer. He's the God who is always there. He cannot forsake you. To forsake you would be to deny himself. He will not lose any of his own. He said, Father, here am I and all those whom thou hast given me. There won't be any empty chairs in heaven. Everyone will arrive safe on the shores of everlasting bliss. Consider the presence of Christ. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Number four, consider the patience and perseverance of Christ. The patience and perseverance of Christ. You probably know that a form of ancient Chinese torture was to put a prisoner's head in kind of like a stock and lay him back and have a drop of water just keep dropping on his forehead. First hundred drops, no problem. Second hundred, ah, it gets to be a little uncomfortable. Ten thousand drops and the, the prisoner often goes insane, loses his mind, drives you crazy. You see, it's not so much the intensity of a short affliction that overwhelms us long-term, but it's the long-term afflictions where you can't see an end. Isn't that true? You think there'll never be an end, and so you, you think you can't go on. You think you can't be upheld. But Jesus, having loved His own, loved them to the end. He will uphold you through the end. Just look back in your life. All those afflictions that seemed overwhelming, you're through them. He's helped you through them. You didn't perish. Even though maybe like David, you thought David hounded for 16 years by Saul. He said, I shall one day perish by the hand of Saul. Did he perish by the hand of Saul? No. Neither will you. You won't perish by the hand of Satan. You won't perish by the hand of your own sin. You won't perish by the hand of the world. You won't perish by the hand of any enemy. God will bring you through. Through the perseverance of Christ, you will persevere with Him. So that you can say with Paul, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And so despite all your fears of perishing at the hands of whatever souls you have, through all the persecutions you face, Jesus won't let the souls of this world have you. He's done too much. He's persevered too long. Still preserving you now in intercession to let you slip through his fingers. I love this little story of a Scottish woman who was on her deathbed in the 18th century. Her pastor was Ebenezer Erskine. And these were the days when pastors actually tested their people on their deathbeds to see if they were ready to die. So he said to her, are you ready to die? She said, yes, pastor. He said, on what grounds are you ready to die? She said, only on the grounds of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Well, he said, but uh, how do you know that? Oh, pastor, by, by what you've told us. Well, what have I told you? Well, you've said we're held in the palms of His hands and He will not let us go. Oh, he said, but what if you were to slip through his fingers? It's impossible, Pastor. Why? Because of what you told us. What did I tell you? You said we're part of his body. If I'm one of his fingers, I can't slip through his fingers. Isn't that great? I'm part of his body. He can't let me go. You see, that's the point. That's the point. He owns you. He, you're his and he is yours. So your trials may alarm you, yes, but they will not destroy you. Your crosses are God's way to His royal crowning. I give unto you eternal life, He says, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. So consider the patience and the perseverance of Christ. Number five, consider the prayers of Christ. How often, how often he prayed for you on earth, even before you were born. How often he set time aside to go pray to his Father in hours of need. And how continually he prays for you now in heaven, which we've just seen. But my point here is this. If he could hear the cry of a poor blind beggar like Bartimaeus, while he's going to Jerusalem, while he's feeling already the burden of the sins of his people upon his shoulders, while he's surrounded by a mass of people who are all clamoring, he hears the cry of one beggar curbside. And he stands still. And he calls the beggar to come to him. If he can hear that, that beggar under those stressful situations... What's he like in heaven now when he's got his ear tuned to the faintest whisper and cry of his people here on earth and loves them? Like Thomas Goodwin said, 
the beautiful heart of Christ in heaven toward his saints on earth. It's actually to our advantage that he's in heaven, attuned to our every need, free of suffering himself now. And he can just concentrate on the needs of his people and give full attention to you. Oh, what a beautiful thing it is to pray to him who prays for you. Don't stop praying. Bring him all your afflictions. Bring him everything, as if he knew nothing about you, yet knowing he knows everything about you. A prayerless affliction is like an open sore ripe for infection. But a prayerful affliction is like an open sore ripe for the balm of Gilead, the healing ointment of Jesus' blood. Consider the prayers of Christ. Then consider him, number six, in his promises, the promises of Christ, in his word. These are, these are golden. This is a beautiful facet of the diamond. You see, afflictions make us sad. They can make us burdened. But the word of God is like honey to sweeten them. Blesses the man that endures affliction. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Promises of God are incredibly rich, especially those that focus on, on Jesus. You know, one time I was, I was really quite down under some sufferings, and uh, we always tried when our kids were young, we always tried not to show that to them when they were, when they were tough times. And, uh, but one time, one of my daughters saw it on my demeanor, and she said, what's wrong, Dad? I said, I'm just, just going through some things right now. The next morning when I got up, she did something so incredibly wonderful. You know, in times of family worship, a good thing to do is if you've had certain texts, certain promises, Christ-centered promises made precious to you in your life, when you go to that part in family worship, you tell your children about that, how that promise was made sweet to you. Children need to hear that. I believe that mom and dad were helped by the Word of God here and, and here and here. And Well, I came downstairs and there was a seven, eight and a half by eleven sheets of paper all taped together in a hallway. The top one was taped to the, 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 the thing above the hallway, whatever it's called. And all seven of them down to the, the ground. And Every one of those sheets was a promise that God had made special to me. My daughter had remembered from family worship these seven promises. And I saw those promises, and it was just like a cloud disappeared. And I actually kept them up there <laughs> all week until the next people came over. So I better take them down. But, but I kept them the whole time because every time I walked through that hallway, I wanted to see those promises. Keep those promises in front of you. Keep them in your memory. Use them. Tape them to your computer. Read them over and over. Read any promise, of course. All promises are yours in Christ Jesus. But especially those who've been made particularly special to you. Revisit those promises. Let your soul marinate in those promises. Consider Him in those promises. For they're all yea and amen in Him. Number seven, consider the plenitude of Christ. The plenitude of Christ. In him there's bread enough and to spare. Consider his names, just his names. There's 280 names and titles, symbols of Jesus in the Bible. It's phenomenal. We have a book in our library. 200, title of this, 200 names and titles of Jesus Christ. And the author expounds every one of them. It's like 600, 700 pages. You could preach a series of 280 sermons on the names of Christ. <laughs> really. Because every name is rich. Every name is Christ himself. Plead those names with God when you're under affliction. That he's son of God, and son of man, and the lamb of God, and the lion of the tribe of Judah, and the Lord our righteousness. Oh, what plenitude there is just in his names. But then this threefold office, that he's your prophet who will teach you and guide you, and your priest who will sacrifice for you and intercede for you and bless you, the king who will rule and lead you. 
His natures, divine and human. In one person, no other religion in the world has that. I need a God who's almighty God. I need a God who's also understanding man. I need a God who's sinless, son of man. It's all there in Hebrews 4. He's pierced the heavens as the almighty Son of God. But He's also the Son of Man who understands you. Yet without sin. He's exactly the Savior you need. There's plenitude in His natures. There's plenitude in His offices. Plenitude in His names. Plenitude in His states. He's all and in all, Paul says. Colossians 3.11 Just swim in the ocean of His plenitude. You know, Spurgeon has a really interesting part in one of his sermons where he talks about Christ being an ocean of fullness for his people. And he says, uh, little fish, to his people, he says, little fish, swim at your leisure and drink in all you can. You'll never drink this ocean dry. There's always more in Christ than you can possibly know. All eternity will be spent exploring his plenitude. He will help you through. Number eight, consider the preciousness of Christ. The Bible uses the word precious 75 times. Most often it refers to something about Jesus. And most often about him, it refers to his blood. The precious blood of Christ. The whole Bible, you know, is a bloody book. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. From the closing of the gates of Eden to the opening of the gates of the heavenly Zion. Blood runs through Scripture, uniting all. Substitutionary blood gloriously restores what sin destroyed. Through His blood, the second Adam has undone what the first Adam undid, reconciling sinners to Himself. That blood is so capable. It's a full-orbed redemption for us, Peter says, Romans 8, 12 through 16. That blood justifies us, Paul says to the Romans, Romans 5, 9. That blood sanctifies us. That blood preserves us. That blood assures us. That blood makes us victorious, we're told. They overcame Satan, Revelation 12, 11, by the blood of the Lamb. And that blood opens heaven for us. You only get to heaven by the blood passport of Jesus Christ. Number nine, consider the purposes of Christ. The purposes. He lived to do His Father's will. To be sanctified through suffering. To merit salvation for you, dear child of God. To present His church without spot or wrinkle to His Father. In a word, His whole life was God-centered in order to be able to conform you to imitate your Father and to be conformed to the image of the Son and to be submissive to the mind of the Spirit by obeying Him and His Word. His purpose is to make you Trinitarian-shaped. His God-centered goals are are too numerous to mention, but let me just say just a few quick ones. Deuteronomy 8 verse 2 says, He sanctifies our afflictions to humble us. That's a good thing. God knows we need humbling. Secondly, Zephaniah 1.12 says, His purpose is in suffering is to teach us what sin is. We need to know that. That's a good thing for us. Hosea 5.15 says that God afflicts us so that we will seek Him early. Early in the day, early in the affliction, early in life. How we need that. That's a good thing. You see, affliction vacuums away the fuel that feeds our pride. And so, John Bunyan said, God's people are like bells. The harder they're hit, the better they sound. You see, you learn more, you learn more from affliction than from prosperity. Robert Layton said, affliction is the diamond dust that heaven polishes its jewels with. Sanctified affliction also serves to keep you 
in Christ's communion, close by his side. When you're really afflicted, isn't that true? Your priorities in life get straightened out. You focus on the main things, and the other, other things are trivia. You let them float by you. He makes you partaker of his suffering and image, of his righteousness and holiness and affliction. To make you willing to suffer anything for his glory. Take me and use me. Consecrate my whole being, Lord. My eyes, my feet, my heart, everything that I am to thee. And then you'll experience like Stephen, that the stones that hit you will only knock you closer to the chief cornerstone, opening heaven the wider for you. Affliction will rub off the rust from your locked, backsliding heart, and it will open your heart's gates afresh to your king's intimate presence chamber, so that the rod of affliction will be God's pencil for drawing Christ's image more fully upon you. Oh, there's so many purposes. Just mention one more. Sanctified affliction will serve to wean you from this world and to cause you to walk by faith. Thomas Watson said, God will have the world hang as a loose, mouth, loose tooth in your mouth, which easily being twitched away does not much bother you. You don't learn that in prosperity. <laughs> you learn that in adversity. You see, in prosperity, we often talk about living by otherworldly faith. But in adversity, we learn to live our talk. And finally, number 10, consider the plan of Christ. Highly exalted, there's no name like His. At His name, every knee shall bow. His eternal plan is His own eternal glory. And He wants to bring us into that glory so that together... With Him, heaven will ring with the glory of perfect, eternal love to the glory of the triune God. But this glory will also be for you. Not just for Himself. Though He's the supreme glory, He will also glorify you through His glory. So that you will return to Him as one of His own, accepted in the Beloved. As His children, as His adopted family, you will have the glory of belonging to the largest family on earth. His eternal plan is to bring you to be with Him where He is through all the sanctifying sufferings in your life. You know, when you compare your sufferings compared to eternity, they get very small no matter how big they are. I was once doing a sermon on 2 Corinthians 4. I was reading about Paul's, you know that long list of troubles and trials that Paul went through. I was jotting down possible points, and I remember jotting down as point number two, Paul's heavy afflictions, as I was reading through the chapter. And then I got to verse 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And those were the days, many years ago, right? I, was, I just used a pencil to write out my points at the beginning. So I erased the point, God's, Paul's heavy afflictions. I erased the word heavy, and I put in the word light. Paul's light afflictions, you see, compared to eternity, they're just light. The Bible speaks of 10-day trials. That's what our life is like. Your rainy days on earth will soon be over. Don't overestimate them. Think more of your coming crown. Think more of your eternal communion with God triune, saints and angels. He that rides to be crowned, said the Puritan John Trapp, need not fear much. Rainy days on earth. I love this little poem of Francis Havergal. Light after darkness, gain after loss, strength after weakness, crown after cross, sweet after bitter, hope after fears, home after wandering, praise after tears, sheaves after sowing, sun after rain, sight after mystery, peace after pain, joy after sorrow, calm after blast, rest after weariness, sweet rest at last. Near after distant, gleam after gloom, love after loneliness, life after tomb, 
After long agony, rapture of bliss, right was the pathway leading to bliss. So remember, you're just renters here. Your personal mansion is reserved with God. Don't expect heaven on earth. Well, foretaste of heaven on earth at moments. But trust that eye that has not seen and ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. The shepherd's rod has honey at the end. Don't despair. Your afflictions are imposed by a fatherly hand of medicinal love in the context of grace. Not, if you're a believer, not by a punitive hand of judgment in the context of works. So consider Christ, his passion, his power, his presence, his perseverance, his promises, his plenitude, his preciousness, his purposes, his plan. And don't rest until you can rest in this for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. And one day, you'll understand it all. You know, I love, I'll close with this illustration. You've heard it, but it's so fitting here. I can't help but repeat it. But you know how Persian rugs are made. The, the rug maker ascends some steps and he, he gets on top of some kind of like scaffolding stuff. And then he, he calls down to his workmen, you know, I want a yellow string, I want a white string, I want, I want a brown and black string or darker strings that symbolize affliction. And uh, he sews the pattern from on top. The workers underneath, they only see a narrow mess of loose, loose strings that seem to make no sense. But then the Persian rug, man, rug maker says eventually to the workers when the pattern is done, come on up, friends. And it's said of the workmen that they're never fail to, they never fail to be amazed when they see the rug in all its hues perfectly arranged with just the right number of dark strings intermixed with the light strings so that it has its own unique beauty. But when you walk through heaven's pearly gates, you will see your life like a Persian rug thrown at your feet from the top down. And there won't be a single string in that rug that is out of place. It'll all be right. All be perfect, as we heard earlier today. As for God, His work is perfect. It will be a beautiful work of art unique to you. God has no twins in heaven. Look alike twins. They're all unique. And they all have their own pattern, sewn by him, and sewn largely through suffering. So consider Christ and in him with all your sufferings. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank Thee that Thou art Lord of all, Lord also of our sufferings, sovereign over them all, but that that sovereignty for Thy people is a fatherly sovereignty that always means our good and Thy glory. We thank Thee so much, dear Father, dear Son, dear Holy Spirit, in working all these things out and informing our lives to be perfect patterns, ultimately on the great day of thy own handiwork, so that we may enter in and take the crowns off of our own heads and cast them at thy feet and say, not unto us, not unto us, O Lord, but to thy name, to thy Son, be all the glory, the dominion, the praise, for he is worthy. So bless us now and go with us and give us fresh courage 
to see our sufferings in the mirror of the Lord Jesus Christ and then to go out and mirror him in his image. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.